so much for uh, joining us for this episode of In Conversation. Quite alright. Um, can you start by telling me a little about your upbringing? You were born in Port Marnock. I was, the mean streets of Port Marnock, uh, on the north side, uh, where I now happily reside once again, which makes me very happy. Um, I spent eight years in the wilderness, in exile, in Kinsili, which is literally the next town over. Uh, but I don't, I don't want to speak about that. Um, I've never lived outside of a one and a half mile radius. I think I've lived in five houses. In within the same within within one and a half mile radius. Okay, it's ridiculous. Um, that's nice too. You must feel yeah. Ridiculous. If you're from Port Marnock, it's nice because <laughs> Port Marnock people are crazy who insist on living in Port Marnock all the time. So yeah, um, raised in Port Marnock the whole time in a theatrical family. Um, I am, as I often point out, a third generation uh, actor. Um, so my dad was Angus McAnally Senior, unsurprisingly, um, who. Uh, this is best known as kind of an RT broadcaster, radio presenter, TV presenter, and producer, whatever else. Uh, and my mum was, my mum is Billy Morton, uh, who's an actress who was a member of the Abbey Company for a long time. Um, and then obviously my grandparents were uh, Ronnie Masterson, my granny, who uh, herself had an acting career that spanned eight decades, but who's counting. Um, and then the the obvious one was was my granddad, Ray Ray McAnally, who uh, I would argue is one of the best actors this country's ever produced. But there you go. Um, did you see them all perform? I never saw my granddad on stage. He died when I was nine, and I never saw him on stage. Um, but I would have seen like film and TV stuff, obviously, at the time. And subsequently, um, kind of after I finished in drama school, I went back and rewatched a lot of the old stuff, a lot of the old DVDs and stuff. Um, and it's just like phenomenal. Like there's crazy stuff. Like, there's the opening scene in. My left foot, where it's like this ridiculous wide shot of the um, maternity ward of the hospital, and from miles away, he just like you just see him kind of walking down this maternity ward, which should be a nothing shot. It should be like it's a wide established shot, maternity ward, him just walking down. The second he comes on screen, it's this enormous presence. And you're going, you can't teach that, you can't learn that. That's not something you pick up in. Uh, that's not what you pick up in drama school. That's just, that's just in you. Um, so yes, yeah, so it's been interesting to go back and watch a lot of this. In fact, even last summer, doing um, what was I doing? Major Barbara in the Abbey. Uh, Killian Burke, who's a young Irish actor now based in London, was over and kind of by chance he was watching through old stuff and was watching uh, a very British coup, the TV thing, which I think was Channel Four. Um, and he's like, "It's incredible!" And I rewatched it again recently, and it really stands up. You know, it's funny because you know you're talking about stuff from the mid '80s. That's what that's 30 years ago now. Yeah. Um, so you know, in, in the way that anything, like you look at movies from the '50s and '40s, like styles change, things date a bit. Um, but this stuff really held up. It's amazing. So within that, uh, did you ever consider not being an actor? No. Was it? Come on. Yeah. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't. It, it was just a presumption, not on the part of my parents. Like they weren't, you know, beating me with wire coat hangers and sending me to stage school. Um, but no, I knew from from no time at all that I was definitely gonna okay. uh, definitely gonna do it. There was no question in my mind. And was there one like was there one performance? Was there one moment that you had that you were like, yes? This oh, is. Um, no, not 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 going to see something like you know. It's not like you know my you know the, the story here. You know my, my my granny brought me to the pantomime and I fell in love. And that, I was like, no. that was me. That was me. Oh really? Yeah, I saw her in the pantomime and I was like, I just want to do what that girl is. Wow. Yeah, and even then later, I saw her when she did um, 
we spoke about this the other day. But Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, she's she's a pretty special talent. Um, yeah, no, there was no there was no landmark moment because just because you were surrounded by it. Like I used to play, I used to play in the Wanderly Wagon of Wanderly Wagon fame because it was at the back of RT because it was just a prop they weren't using it anymore. So I was always kind of surrounded by the business, and I think once you get exposed to it, like for good and for bad, like there's there's like there's tough elements to our game. Um, but once you get exposed to those positives, I don't know that you could ever find a situation where you went, ah, no, I wouldn't like to do that. Yeah. Um, you got it. It's too awesome. Um, it is. No, and um, so you went, you went and trained them. I did. I started working first. I started auditioning for stuff when I was about 11 and 12. Okay. Mercifully, I didn't get any of those. Why did um, you say mercifully? Because I would have been an obnoxious person if I got any of those I would have I would have I know I would have uh, so mercifully I didn't there, there's a story told in our house that um, that I got very close to being in the butcher boy not the butcher boy that Neil Jordan eventually made but an earlier incarnation of it when I think the funding fell through or whatever and they didn't end up making it um, like allegedly I was down to a handful okay. of fellas for that um, but that didn't happen um, and I am I'm eternally grateful that it didn't happen I, I started working at 15 um, and what was your first job? The first gig was um, the Cuchulain Cycle, the full five Cuchulain plays by Yates that Michael Scott directed. Um, and I got the gig because the legendary Phyllis Ryan, theatre producer and actress, um, would have been very good friends of the family. And they were looking, they needed a young man to come and play the part of the young man who comes over to fight Cuchulain. Um, and, and she got me in for the audition. Now, I still had the audition. It wasn't a case of, hey, we know you, you can go and do it. So I auditioned um, and, and got the gig. So yeah, I auditioned and I auditioned and got the gig and it was brilliant because like you're a fifteen year old kid, you're surrounded by all these incredible <laughs> <laughs> hello. I have to explain we're upstairs in the stag's head, so there is a lot of background. It's all right. <laughs> a- ambiance as the fellow says. Uh, yeah, that was amazing because you're a fifteen year old kid and here you are working with these great actors in this amazing show and it was it like it was a really good show um it was particularly well received we revived it and did it again here we toured it over to um the riverside studios and hammersmith in london as well um so it was great um and at, the, at exactly the same time i also did my first film which is a movie called the nephew that not an awful lot of people have seen starring Donald mccann and uh pierce brosnan yes. uh and just like so that they happened like within I think in the space of about two or three weeks, I got news that I got both gigs. Um, that must have been huge. It was insane. Yeah. It's insane. You're a 15-year-old kid. Yeah. Um, and all you've ever wanted to do is be an actor. And now, okay, go and do a movie with Pierce Brosnan. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks, I will. <laughs> um, do you know what I mean? But, like, but the idea that your first day on a film set is a scene opposite Donald McCann. You're going, okay, no pressure. Um, who was lovely, really lovely. Um, and kind of chatting about the family and whatever else. Uh, but then... We're in the middle of anyway. We're in the middle of a break of shooting, and um, Mr. Pierce Brosnan is there on set because he was producing it as well. So he's there, and uh, the director goes, "Oh, sorry, Pierce. By the way, this is Angus. No more elaborate introduction than that. Just this is Angus." And he turned around and said, "Ah, oh, great to see the McAnally tradition carrying on. Would you believe the last time I was standing on this pier, some pier down in Wicklow? So the last time I was standing on this pier was with your granddad." Um, and uh, I was going, "God, that's incredible!" And full of chat and everything. He kept going this is great that he knows who I am, that we're here, I'm still a 15-year-old kid, it's amazing. And then a couple of weeks later, I was flicking through the channels late at night on TV, and what comes on the telly? Only Taffin, which is, by, you know, wide 
uh, <laughs> wide uh, consideration, the worst motion picture ever made. Um, but there's Taffin, and what comes on? Only the scene on the pier with Pierce Brosnan and my granddad Ray. He's going, this is amazing. Um, and you just, yeah, just felt like part of that world suddenly. So. Like if you're you're working and then you decide to train, many actors might not yeah. decide to do that. Yeah, I know. I I, I felt I had to because I did a bit. I did a, I did a couple a couple more shows. Maybe a bit more film. I did. I did a short film with John Cronin, the actor. Um, uh, so we go back a long way. Yeah. So I did. I was was working away in as much as you do when you're fifteen or sixteen. Like I wasn't, you know, like I, I was. I was busy, but uh, I was still in school and whatever else. But I did, and so I'd finish school and then go and train because, like any apprenticeship, you want to learn your craft, you want to learn what you're doing. Um, and at the time, essentially, there was two options here, as far as I was concerned. There was the Gaiety and there was Trinity. Um, and so I applied for both and didn't get the Gaiety initially. Um, they, they, at the time, they said they were operating kind of like a traffic light system, where like a red was a Please fuck off. Uh, am I I'm allowed to say bad words? Am yes, I? you Dead. are. Okay. Yes. Fucking awesome. Uh, so red was, red, red, red was a please fuck off. Orange was, oh, we'll wait and see. And green was, congratulations, got a place. And they kind of put me in this orange thing. I went, okay, cool. That's, that's fine. That's your choice. So, <laughs> see, also, the other thing to remember is I was the greatest actor in the world of at this course. time. I was <laughs> the most spectacular talent anybody had ever seen, as far as I was concerned. Uh, and then I applied for Trinity and did the worst audition any human being has ever done for anything in the history of the world. I was appalling. I got about two words into the monologue. I went, oh, this is shit. This is terrible. This is the worst acting anyone has ever done. Um, and I remember I left, I left the audition for Trinity and I rang my mum uh, from a phone box because in those days we didn't have mobile phones. Uh, I rang my mum and said, listen, mum, um, Bad news, it was absolutely appalling. Uh, I was terrible. But uh, we'll pick ourselves up, we'll go again next year, and it'll be fine. Um, and then w- went back in the afternoon to see who was called back for the afternoon sessions, and miraculously, there was my name. But funnily enough, on that same day, as I was walking down Grafton Street, going to Trinity to do the audition, someone comes up and goes, Angus, how are you? I went, hello, strange man. He says, no, I met you at like some, you know, one of those college fairs in the RDS where you go and see all the different colleges. So I met you at the college fair, you were... Um, you were going to the Welsh College of Music and Drama or something at that stand. I'm talking about, oh, yeah, that's right. We chatted away and we went in, walked all the Trinity together. Um, and, you know, he auditioned, I think, like one before me and I went in directly after him. Uh, and, uh, and that man went on to become Alan Leach of Downton Abbey Frank. Wow. Um, okay. who, who ended up not doing the course, but I did the, the drama degree kind of parallel to the actor. Right, course. okay, yes. Um, so, yeah, I got called back for the afternoon session. I went, oh, okay. I don't know why they've done that. Clearly, they can't judge talent at all. But you um, mustn't have been. I, I guess they saw something. They saw something. I, they saw something yeah. A spark of something, or something they felt they could do something with. So they called me back for the afternoon, which was like a very much a physical kind of movement session. I, I well, I mean, you know, ironically enough, I think you know, with all the hype about fight night and stuff that I did, I, I'm not a physical actor I, by any stretch of my, my imagination. No one would consider me. Oh, there's Angle, this great physical actor. It's, it's not me. It's not my strong point. It's not my interest. It's like you know. It, it's not me. So I go, oh God, right, okay, this is going to be tough, but you've been given a second chance here that you don't deserve. You better go in and nail this. Um, and I did. I remember, uh, I remember going to get the phone call to say, before I'd even, in the middle of the leaving cert, got the phone call for Trinity to say, congratulations, you're in. And because it was outside CAO, it didn't matter what happened with the rest of the leaving cert. And needless to say, I got the two best results in the two exams after that when I didn't care anymore. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, 
So that period, what, what was that like? What was training like for Insane. You? It nearly killed me. But I loved, as weird to say, I loved every second of it. I, I did. I loved the misery of it when it was miserable. And I loved the awesomeness of it when it was awesome. It was incredible. We were, um, we were a very special group of people, it has to be said. But like, occasionally that happens. I was talking to my brother about this last night. Uh, and he referred to us as the class of 92. I said... What are you talking about, you idiot? It was the class of 2002. He says, no, no, I mean the Manchester United class of 92, like of you know, gigs and skulls and all this kind of stuff. And, and in a way, that's what we were. Just for, It sometimes happens. And as a side note, I think it has happened with the gang who have just graduated from the Lear, which yeah. is kind of the natural inheritor of the old Trinity course. Um, they, too, are a very special group of actors. So we went in, and, you know, again, it was uh, Lisa Lam, Ruth Negga, uh, me, Judith Roddy, um, Aaron, Monaghan. Aaron Monaghan, whatever happened to him, um, you know, my best mate Brian Malarkey, Vicky Burke, and, like, there was just this incredible group of people. Um, Kerry Condon was also due to be in with us. She rocked up on day one to say, listen, I'm after being offered a movie, I'm going to go do that instead, best of luck, I hope the course treats you all well. Um, so she never, so she was to be part of it, right. uh, but then didn't do it. And there was, at the start there was 14 of us, uh, was it about 14? Was the, oh, anyway, it was, yeah, we, we lost one or two along the way. We had one girl was thrown out at the end of first year. We had one guy who dropped out after about three weeks, but not before he had taken, I think, each of the girls in the class to bed at least once and then left. So that was a mirac- miraculous achievement. Um, and we finished, so we finished up with 11 of us, um, a very, very special group of people. And the training was, was brilliant. It was brutal and tough. Uh, it was hard work. I mean, something with the rest of your friends in college, you're doing like seven-hour weeks or 12-hour weeks, and you're there, you know, a quiet week is a 40-hour week uh, in a course like that. And it's physically tough. Um, and also, you're just finding yourself, you're like, because we were also in that kind of Trinity gang, because I'd been a big fan of the years that had gone before, um, particularly of Brian Burroughs' year. Um, the How many years was Brian ahead of you? Burroughs was coming out as I was going in. He graduated in the summer of 99, and I went in in the October of 99. Um, and his gang with Connor Delaney and a few other heads like that, they were the first ever degree. It, was right, like it, it okay. moved from the two year diploma to the three year degree. And they were the first batch of degree students. Um, uh, but it was always a much broader age range, um, like, you know, kind of 25 to 35. Whereas when we went in, with the exception of John Smith, who I think at the time was 40, we were all 18 and 19, which is kind of great for the college end of it, going out and partying and stuff, which we still try to do as much as was humanly possible. Um, but I don't know how great that is for actor training. Um, I don't know how much of the world you can know or have seen at 18. But as I've said before, like if anyone tried to stop me training at 18, I would have killed them. Um, I, I, was, I was really hungry for it. But the training was great. Tough, brutal, but great. And, and the foundation for it. Like, I, it, it. It changed an awful lot about how I worked. In what regard? Well, I used to, when I was a kid... Someone's very excited. I used to, I'd get a script and I would read it and I would decide in my house before you would go into rehearsals, I would decide the correct way to play that script. And then I would do that mm-hmm. from day one of rehearsals to the last day of the performance with almost no change or evolution or improvement or happy accidents or anything. Uh, so clearly I've, I've ditched that. Um, I'm, I'm much happier when things are kind of free-flowing and, and, and things change up kind of night by night. And Aaron Monaghan, we were paired as a as a double act in every single show we did in college, right the way through the three years, and like that, I remember like we would just do insane stuff, like within certain confines, but like mad stuff every night, completely different, totally fresh and totally alive. I remember getting pulled aside in first year for one of these tutorials that they do, and they said to us, said to me, "You are as far wrong as you could possibly be." 
And I went, oh, okay, that's okay. Um, and I said, but do you think I'll get better? And I went, oh yeah, look, we've no, like we've no fears. It'll be grand. But at the moment, you're like you're you're in your own way. You're all this kind of stuff. Um, and so it was a really useful three years for me to kind of get that. Just to get it under your belt, and also it's the, it's the luxury of making your mistakes in private as yeah. well. It's a lot to be said for it. Um, you gain confidence. Yeah, you do, and also you're getting cast in parts that you shouldn't be cast in, yeah. like the old rep system. Um, you know, I remember playing Aaron's dad and stuff. You go like, which obviously is ridiculous casting because I think he's a year older than I am. Um, but really useful because you go, okay, well look, here's the challenge that, that's been set to you. So how you okay, you got you got to pull this off. What are you going to do? I mean, the whole point of acting is that you're playing people who aren't you to begin with. So if your job is to pretend to be other people, then, you know, make it as big a stretch as possible, you know? So, okay, so that, that's the brilliant part of college. Uh, what didn't training teach you about what came after? Uh, well, one of, one of the big criticisms I had of Trinity at the time... Uh, versus the gaiety and I've said this to Patrick Sutton a lot is uh, drama schools are supposed to break you down like the army um, I think the gaiety is very good at building you back up again and I don't know that the Trinity course at that time was particularly adept at that looking at the gang coming out of the Lear now um, which I see as a pretty straight continuation it's a three year acting degree from Trinity um, I, with much of the staff from, from the old Trinity days um, I, I, I think they have certainly addressed that I mean they, they are young confident uh, supremely talented actors coming out ready to take on the world um, so I think that's been fixed um, but that was certainly a problem when I was there I would have thought and the other thing is and this has shifted in the last couple of years just with the way the industry has gone um, and the way kind of the global economy has gone um, that thing of being a self-starter getting up and doing it yourself there was no there was no question of that when, when I was training um, like it was it was the old style of, of training where you used to, like you do conservatoire style training so that you would sit and wait for the phone to ring show up as an actor for hire and, and you know do, do your job um, and I think the industry here has changed uh, hugely since then in that you know just with the way things have gone I think for a lot of people unless you're up and making it happen yourself then things just aren't going to happen and you have certainly done that <laughs> yeah I, I did yeah I did I only, look at the end of the story is if Steven Spielberg had been ringing me I wouldn't have done it you know I did it because I had to now I've, I've loved doing it but I did it because I had to now, we're jumping slightly ahead but we can do that sure um, because you have done that fight mm. night was that, was that the first yeah fight night was the first production from Rise and um, how did Rise came first and then Fight Night. No, sorry, this is where it gets a bit funny. Most people set up a company to put on a show. Yeah. I put on a show to set up a company. Right. I had been talking since Trinity, since since leaving drama school back in two thousand and two. Like it was always my intention to set up my own company. Um, Even in drama. Yeah, school, yeah, yeah. We used to, myself and Brian Malarkey used to talk about it all the time. Um, that you would make the stuff you wanted to make, and only because. My grandparents had had Old Key Productions, which was their production company, um, and my parents had had Ashley Productions, which was their production company. So it, it was kind of just, I saw that as the norm, okay. that you did your freelance work, but also you had a, a, an avenue to make your own stuff. Because um, also I think it's important for, at the risk of sounding a bit poncy on it, like I think it's important for artists to have a voice, to have something to say. Um, and particularly when you're in the acting side of things, as I usually am, um, uh, you know, you can be considered an interpretive artist rather than a creative artist, and all that stuff. And I think, you know, I've got something to say. Why don't I go and say it? So what happened was, I was getting pissed off um, at what was happening in Dublin. I was getting pissed off at the work that was happening in Dublin. The work that you were doing. No, the work the that work I wasn't that doing. The work that other people were doing. Okay. Um, because a lot of it wasn't very good. Uh, it was lazy. It was self-indulgent. 
and it was getting championed. And this celebration of mediocrity pissed me all the way off. Can you define... In... Do you mean name check the people I'm talking about? No, I don't. <laughs> but I, I mean, there, you know, there are styles of acting, and uh, there is a there's maybe a style that has crept in that is quite filmic. Yeah. Um, yeah, there is. Which is one way of doing it, and then there is maybe another way of doing it. Yeah, it. It, it wasn't so much that. It wasn't about it wasn't about the style of performance, or it, it was about it was about the kind of shows that were being made and. If, you know, for the purpose of sweeping generalizations, I make pretty conservative, standard theatre, conventional stories told in relatively conventional productions, broadly speaking. Um, and 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 so so if you if you want to take the you know as I said for broad generalizations, if you, broad generalizations, if you want to take the flip side of that as being uh, we'll all use our own names, we we'll put a mic down uh, downstage left, um, we'll use verbatim text of an interview I did with my granny or, or that kind of stuff. Okay, so there so I mean that is me being flippant and dismissive, right? But um, I, so, so but there was that kind of a thing that there was a lot of that work going on. I didn't think it was very good. Uh, it may have been innovative and experimental and all the other words that the Arts Council wanted it to be. Um, but my problem is that, the, in my opinion, uh, and I've said it to everyone else, so I can say it out loud, uh, I think that the Arts Council has, over the last few years, placed um, concept over uh, execution um, and, uh, and over excellence. And uh, and you know and innovation over you know like just hard work and making making proper plays. Uh, so there, I, yeah. and there has been that debate. There has yeah. been and Aaron Monaghan and <laughs> and this is but it is a necessary debate and there is no. There's, oh happen. come here! There's room for everybody. Yeah. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be allowed to make work, but what was pissed me off was that uh, the lot, I've, I felt a lot of it was lazy. Okay. Uh, I didn't feel it was genuinely innovative. Uh, I thought it was lazy and it was pissing me off. But there comes a point where you can only do so much bitching about that in the pub after rehearsals on a Friday. Like, piss or get off the pot. If you, if you think that's not good enough, then show us what you think is good enough. So I did. Um, and that's where Fight Night came from. I've been toying around with the idea uh, of, of actually of a gap player um, for a while. I had about eight pages written, all of which were horrendous. Um, and then the Shona Bag Initiative came up where it was a case of Fishamble, the Irish Theatre Institute and the Fringe coming together saying we will be what I refer to as the stabilisers on the bike. We'll be, we'll be kind of the, the support around you. Um, you come to us with the idea, Gavin will write the show, we'll give you all the production support you need, we'll get venues and presenters in to see it so we can have a life outside. The, the concept being it was Gavin's baby, Gavin's brainchild. There was about, I think, 62 or 63 arts venues, theatres had sprung up over the Celtic Tiger era because for all their faults Fianna Fáil did put money into the arts the only problem was they put it in in the only language they understood which was bricks and mortar um, so there's like 60 odd arts venues with no money to programme in work for their audiences and there's a lot of actors sitting on their arses with no work to go and do so let's bring the two things together make small scale stripped back tourable shows low cost tourable shows um, actors get the work venues get the product audiences get the product everybody wins so I said look I'll go and pitch this idea um, of, of the ga player and I said but look I, I, I changed it and I said I won't mention the ga uh, I'll leave it open ended I won't say which sport and why did you feel that that was um, because honestly because I didn't want to do it about the ga I wanted to do it about pro wrestling and I didn't want to say pro wrestling because I thought I'd be laughed out of the room at least if we got in and left it open we could have a chat about it uh, so I wanted to do it about pro wrestling um, but, the, but the, um, I've said this before like the one sport I refused to touch was boxing 
that I just point blank it wasn't going to happen of, of all sports didn't matter tiddlywinks pool rugby anything not boxing first words out of Gavin's mouth when I walk into the room we're doing this as a boxer and I'm going yeah yeah that's really interesting because <laughs> there's, there's loads of sports we could look at yeah we're doing a boxing like, yeah because there's so many sports with lenses <laughs> going, no. and the, look, the only reason I didn't want to do it because I knew I couldn't fake it I knew I'd have to do the work Yeah. Um, and I did have to do the work and it was miserable at times like I, you know you're talking about three months in a boxing gym to get ready for that show but there's something it's a little like tennis there's something compelling about because a boxer like an actor like what you did a boxer carries that on his shoulders yeah and I mean it's funny like it, as as the show kind of grew and as it's come back a few times and I've got more involved in the world of boxing whatever else the more you understand the two things are very very similar I mean, and it's no coincidence that people like Liam Neeson and other guys have been pretty successful boxers in their early days um, because the thing of uh, you know putting in all the preparation you've only yourself to rely on you have to perform on a given date and, and you know perform to the best of your ability um, so I, I've taken a lot of what I learned from the fight game and applied it back to acting and, and making theatre um, particularly the whole thing of um, train hard, fight easy uh, I think it's a wonderful motto and the idea is if you put yourself through more in the gym uh, than you'll ever have to face in the ring then, then fight night's easy like walking, walking into that ring is, is easy then because like, he's not going to be able to do anything worse to you than you haven't already done to yourself and I kind of take that approach to rehearsals now where work the Jesus out of it in rehearsals like just train hard I train hard and then fight easy then on the night you know it'll be fine basically that makes sense. It does. What did that involve? What were the practicalities of? Um, first of all, how do you start a script? Where's your starting point? Oh, I have. I get ideas for shows. I try and write them. I fail miserably. I ring Gavin Costick and I say, Gavin, I have this idea for a show. Will you make it happen for me? So that's a collaboration. That yeah, that, that's continued on. Okay. Um, and. And we're, we're going to finish off the trilogy. So, so Fight Night was the first one. Mm-hmm. Then the last one we did back in, in the Fringe in uh, September 2013 was a play called The Games People Play, which is a two-hander with the lovely uh, Lorna Quinn, um, which is... Uh, like, it's not a sequel or anything, but we, we, we know what we're doing with the three plays. We know what we're talking about and how we're talking about them. Um, so, so it was part two, and, and he's going to do part three as well. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's, that's, that's how we do it. I get, I get the idea... Um, we kind of develop it together the idea a bit and, but then ultimately he goes off and sits down at his laptop or typewriter or whatever it is he, he uses um, and like an old fashioned writer writes writes the play okay um, so you the burden of writing isn't no look I, I've always wanted to go and write yeah um, I have tried bits and pieces I've done some writing courses like writing for theatre and stuff um, but I think for the moment I know that I'm not as good a writer as Gavin Kostick is, uh, and I know, and I know that we work really well together. So why would I? I, I the only thing that ever matters for me, like ego-wise, I'd love to be writing, you know, written by Angus McAnally. Oh my God, it's so amazing! It would be lovely, um, but I'd rather the show was right than 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 just written by me. So uh, so I'm happy to let him do it for the moment because he's 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 pretty good. And also, there's things like the, the first time he showed me the first draft of Fight Night. Which is a play that kind of changed my life, if that's not a ridiculous thing to say. In in what way? And you, I mean, you have you've touched on it. Well, c- control of your own destiny as an actor is such a rare thing, and Fight Night gave me that. But also was that thing of you know, like I said, I was bitching about the work that was going on. If you finally do man up and go, okay, well look, this is what I think. This is what I think is good theatre. What do you think of this? 
I find that went really well, you know, and it won a lot of awards, and but, but audiences loved it, and, and critics loved it, and it, like, it went really well. And the vindication in that of going, yeah, your artistic vision for what you want to do, the kind of theatre you want to make, we, we like it. You know, Fight Night has played like nearly a hundred shows um, all over the country and abroad, uh, and people go mad for it. And so there's, there's a nice vindication in that. But on day one, when he showed me the first draft, within like two pages or three pages, there was stuff from that half-written gap play, which is an abomination, um, but the stuff from that half-written gap play, that he had like two or three things in within the first two or three pages and you're going if you're telepathically putting into this play what I would have put into the play without me having ever mentioned it we're, we're okay we're on uh, we're on good ground here like I remember turning to him I think it was about two or three pages in and I just stopped and I said Gavin would it be a terrible thing if I told you I fucking love this play and he went no that'd be good I went okay and then it went on now, I have to say the, the, I mean, the, the fight was success huge amount of that goes down to Brian Burroughs like, there was no way I could have made that show without him the training no, not the training. No, it wasn't the physical stuff at all. It was the, the storytelling of it. Um, there's scenes in Fight Night where I'm playing like five or six characters, but it's not written in a style where you can kind of jump back and forth. It's just written, some of, that, some of it's just in, in straight dialogue of, like, like of a kind of standard family drama. You just have to play everybody from the two-year-old boy up to the, the dad and the mother and the girlfriend and Dan. And that's not an easy thing to do. And I'm just looking at it going, I, I, this is not something I can perform. I don't know how to do this. But I knew that Burroughs would know, uh, and so I approached him. I approached him to direct. And like I said, look, I'd been a fan of Burroughs from the time that um, you know, from 15 years ago. Like I famously used to take my, my the half days we had from school when I was 18 in sixth year. We had a half day on a Wednesday, and I would take the train into town, get off, walk into Trinity, and hang around outside the Samuel Beckett Theatre in Trinity, in the hope that I would see Brian Burroughs and his mates learning lines outside, having a smoke, having a chat, whatever. And I would walk past and like, stop and pretend to tie my lace so I would have an extra 30 seconds in their presence. That's how big of a fan of them I was. Uh, and so I knew Burroughs could do it, and we, we'd worked together closely enough over the years. Approached him, he was my first and only choice. Mercifully, he was able to do it. Uh, and his way of unlocking the physical storytelling style that we used for that was just key. Like, I just couldn't have done it without him. So out of that came Rise. Yeah, I mean that that was the that was that was the launch pad for Rise. So so Rise kind of existed in my head before that. Um, like we had been we'd been applying to different places to get like there was shows we wanted to put on. We're going to do um, this award-winning Australian play that I still want to do. If I ever get the money for it. Um, so we had you know we had been talking to people about getting the rights for that. We're just waiting for the one to launch us. Like what's going to be the show? And kind of all the stars aligned on the show and a bag thing to go. Look, we'll, we'll do this as the launch. Um, so it was the first thing from Rise, and you know, and very consciously we were Rise Productions, not Rise Theatre Company. And you say we Rise is we. <laughs> I like to say we because it makes me sound more important. And like it's not just me and Vanity Publishing. Um, Brian Malaki, who I trained with, is. Uh, Kind of unofficial co-founder and, and member in that, like we always talk about it right the way along. He he can't be hands-on with it, um, but uh, but he's now an incredibly high-flying PR uh, guru, and so he does an awful lot in terms of publicity for us and kind of managing stuff. And and he made one of the shows with us um, a piece called Tear Down the Walls, which we did for the theatre festival a couple of years ago, which was this kind of site-specific installation performance thing. He made one of those. He, we kind of made it in two halves, and, and he made one half, and I had made the other. So, in, in my head, he's still actively involved. Um, but I guess 
I guess the reality of the Wii is like the, the Rise team is the Rise team from Fight Night that we've had back for uh, we had back for games people play and we'll have again for finishing off the trilogy which is Gavin writing Burroughs directing me in it and Colin Marr designing basically uh, so that that's kind of the Rise team okay. and within that you you have autonomy in a way that actors don't always mm. have uh, so the podcast yeah. Which we have to say um, was the, what was the inspirations? Is too fancy for the word. Was the idea yeah. for these? Um, where did the idea for those spring from? Pro wrestling, very straightforward. It's all everything in my life comes back to pro wrestling. Men in light and baby oil just makes me happy. <laughs> so, um, so the deal is this: there was a there was a, a growing trend in the world of pro wrestling after basically. Uh, Brief history in pro wrestling. Vince McMahon, who runs then WWF, now WWE, uh, has kind of bought up any competition that exists. Uh, so there's no real competition anymore, so it's the only place you can go to work and earn a living, broadly speaking. You can work in Japan and other places as well. But in terms of the States, really, it's, it's, a, it's the only place you can go. So uh, there were guys within that company. There's, there's only going to be a few top slots for the guys who want to be... Uh, you know, champ or the theatrical equivalent for me. You're looking at you know, if you want to be playing Hamlet in the Abbey. There's only it's only a few amount of slots, and there was guys who felt that they were that they were more talented than kind of the slot they had been given, uh, and felt that if they were given a chance, um, that they would be able to prove that. Uh, they felt they weren't getting a fair crack of the whip, and so people, they, a couple of guys, went out of their way to kind of just impose themselves on the business and just kind of go, look, grab people's attention, go, look, here I am. So uh, a couple of things happened. Um, uh, a fellow called Zack Ryder made a YouTube series of these kind of short two and three minute little comedy vignettes um, and amassed this incredible uh, following online. Um, and then a guy called Colt Cabana, who I stole the idea for the podcast off. He has a, he has a pro wrestling podcast where he interviews wrestlers every week. Um, and he had been let go by WWE. Um, and this again this was something that he had control over uh, and it was part of that kind of that kind of punk DIY ethos of just okay well if if the powers of B aren't giving you what you perceive to be a fair crack of the whip then go and fucking grab it just go and do it so I did because I felt I felt I was pretty good at what I did and I didn't feel like I was getting the opportunities I might have deserved and because that was I'm jumping back a little bit but you're an actor who I would perceive as kind of constantly busy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, you seem to. Did you? Were you not getting? Was no, I wasn't. Part? I wasn't getting. I wasn't getting the kind of parts I wanted to be getting, um, and I wasn't getting seen for some stuff. Uh, and I went, I'm just going to go and grab this. Now, again, you can't link these things. But I hadn't been in the Abbey in about four years. Did the podcast, and I think two months later, I was casting the Abbey. Okay. Now. I don't think someone in the like Kelly Field in the Abbey cast department listened to a podcast about oh there's Engel we've forgotten about him let's give him a job but you know it's that thing of, uh, of being proactive and just making it happen and also just kind of success breeding success I don't know that it's you know asking the universe to bestow wonderful gifts no, on you or anything but work yeah, and you're just in that being proactive thing. and it was that thing of going I, I felt like I was I was very aware of what I was doing at the start like it, it was you know on one level it was the altruistic thing of um, promoting and supporting and celebrating Irish theatre um, and, and the other big thing for me was uh, in the space of a year both Tomás McConaughey and Phyllis Ryan had died 
uh, kind of iconic theatre names, uh, producers and directors and whatever else. And and I was acutely aware that kind of because of my family connections, I would have known who those people were. Yeah. Not many other people my age did, yeah. and certainly nobody younger than me did. Um, and I went because it, it, it's different to film because I do work primarily in theatre. It's it's different. Filming film lasts. You can go and watch the Ray McAnally DVDs when you finish drama school now, and, and it's there to see. But theatre disappears. Uh, and I wanted a time capsule. I wanted to go, here's, 50, here's a, a year in the life of Irish Theatre. Here's 52 episodes over 52 weeks of directors, designers, writers, actors, um, producers. Uh, you know, to say, this is a, a snapshot of who we are um, at that time. But I was also acutely aware that it was an hour-long infomercial for me and Rise Productions going into very influential years every week. Like, you know, I wasn't stupid. Um, you know, and that's... It makes sense to do that. And did you... Was it only ever going to be a year? Yeah, it would have killed yeah. me to keep on going. It's just one of those things. You, like, you talk about an hour-long interview format weekly. Uh, you know, that's... So, like, Miriam meets, right, uh, on RTE. You're talking about, like, a team of, what, two, three, four people? Yeah. With researchers, full-time, whatever else. I don't have full-time researchers. It was me. Mm-hmm. And so you got, the, like, the crazy time. When I was making the podcast, I was also doing the show in the Abbey and shooting a TV show down in Galway. And if that sounds insane, it's because it fucking was. Um, I was. What I was doing was I was walking off stage in the Abbey at 11 o'clock at night, getting into a waiting car, being driven to Galway for 1 o'clock in the morning, learning lines for the shoot the next day from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock, producing the podcast from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock in the morning, sleeping from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., then getting down on set, set, shooting for the day, getting back into the car, driving cross-country, walking out of the car, walking on stage in the Abbey, walking off stage in the Abbey, back into the car to cross the country again for a month. 22-hour days, uh, which is insane. And what show in the Abbey was that? That was The House, the Tom Murphy play, um, which was just bonkers. And, and it was when I was shooting the, the 1916 thing down in Galway. Um, like, that kind of stuff will, will kill you. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I was happy to do it for a period of time, but, yeah, it was only ever going to be a year. I wanted it to be a snapshot. Okay. Although I am leaving myself... Yeah, so another thing about the year was... Uh, I wanted to kill it after a year and get out while, while we were on top. Um, and also, I didn't want to be known as Engo the interviewer. I wanted to, if people started to associate me more with that than with the career as an actor, I would have been very concerned. Uh, so, but also, Ricky Gervais made uh, 12 episodes of The Office and killed it off. Yes. Get out while you're on top. So I said, right, that's what I'll do. I'll do the year and I'll get out. Okay. But Ricky left himself Christmas specials. So, I, so I'm leaving the option of a Christmas special open to me at some point in the future, uh, but but the idea of going back to it as as a as a regular weekly thing it's just not possible. Yeah. Not with a, a wife and a child and a career and everything else. Because um, you got married and all of this, and you did have a child. Yeah, I did. Um, I did. <laughs> Where did that fit in? My daughter was two weeks old when I signed up for Fight Night. Right. So on that crazy thing, obviously I was producing Fight Night. I was in it, and I was also doing another show for that Fringe, which we were devising. So. I'd be working all day, I'd get home, try and see my wife and my brand newborn daughter, get her to bed. It meant that almost every training session for the fight night, or initial camp, the initial training camp, almost every training session happened after midnight. Like, like you'd get to one o'clock in the morning, daughter would be asleep, I'd have finished off the work I needed to do on whatever I was doing for the two different shows, then push the kitchen table back, take the skipping rope out and start working. Which is, as, which is about as much fun as it sounds. Yeah. <laughs> but it had to be done. Like, what are you, what are you going to do? Are you going to make it happen or you're not? You know, hard work. Uh, okay, so, and you put in that hard work. Mm-hmm. Uh, did it 
you know, you're, you're, you're going on to the third part of the trilogy. Mm-hmm. Will that situation occur again? Have you gotten to a point where it's where balance is a little bit more present? Um, not really. Okay. Because you, really. were, you were in Major Barbara and doing the games people play. Yeah, I was doing both of those <laughs> at the same time. And, you know, and, I, and I'm the producer with Rise, so I'm doing all the production stuff as well. So it's hard. It is very hard. But the thing is, we, uh, we, we've never got any Arts Council funding for any of the stuff we've done, for anything. Um, and that's just, uh, that's just where the, the industry is at the moment. Um, it's where the economy is, and it's where, you know, in terms of the government putting money into it, they aren't doing it. Um, so there's less money to go around and, and the kind of, like I said, the kind of work we're making doesn't really tick a lot of the boxes for the Arts Council um, so, we, so we've been flying solo uh, and we've been making it happen and just kind of, you know, essentially making what has to then be just commercially viable theatre which, you know, there's no, there's no shame in that, that's absolutely fine but it's, but it's tough, so I mean, the big thing, in terms of the, the balance that you're talking about, if I was to get you know, a project grant from the Arts Council mm-hmm. I could just pay other people to do all so the work that I end yeah. up doing um, that's that would be the big thing in terms of, and, and allow me to just concentrate on if, well effectively concentrate on being an actor when it comes to these these ones you know just pay other people to do all the heavy lifting stuff that I end up doing around it uh, we that was I was going to come to that but now that we've come to it let's, let's go for it right um, <laughs> uh, and allow me to be the dummy here okay um, it's usually my role but, uh, but you, you've touched on you mentioned commercially viable theatre mm-hmm. The one I saw the games pe- people play in the Viking Theatre. Yes. And the night I was there, what was really kind of noticeable and lovely was that it was predominantly a non theatre going audience in the sense that most people there weren't from the industry. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, how much of a problem, because it, it has been aired numerous times. Is there something that we're generally doing wrong in failing to attract a greater scope of audiences? Um, or is that just the nature of the business that it's it's not it's not a it's not an entertainment people might immediately seek out? Someone said this the other day. When you ask people, do they go to the theatre? Mm-hmm. They say, no, but I really should. I should go and see more theatre. Should. Like I should exercise more. Yeah. I should I should eat less fried food. Like you know, if it's something you're supposed to do, if it's something that's good for you, that's not like you know, like no one ever say, oh, I should go to the cinema more, or you know. Like, so, so I think there is a there is a bit of a perception around it that it's uh, that it you know that it's you know, I don't know that it's too highbrow or, or whatever. I, I don't think so. Um, I've had cracking nights in the theatre. Uh, and continue to have. I like. I love going. Like I love going and buying tickets and yeah. seeing shows. Um, so in terms of like our like our job to attract audiences in. Um, well, it is like this idea that you know I'll just I, I'll, I'll follow my own artistic vision and I'll and I'll make this show because I want to I want to do well. That, that's great, but in reality, I, it's theatrical masturbation to an extent. You're going, if it's just for you, do it in the privacy of your own home. Like You, you need to have an awareness that, because without an audience theatre doesn't exist. The audience is the sole component without which theatre can't exist. You can go on stage without a script, you can go on stage without costumes, you can go on stage without lights, you can go on stage without actors even if you're Beckett. Um, but, you can't go up there without an audience. 
So that's like so. I mean, it's that weird thing. You get it in arts council applications as well. You know, you know, a strong track record of making or, or making work for audiences. Going, who the fuck else are you making it for? It's got so. So for me, absolutely, everything comes back to the audience all the time about their experience and how you make it for them. No, you do got to get them through the door in the first place, um, and that's not always easy. And when you were touring, then when you toured regionally, did you get in good audiences? It varies. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the venues we went to were absolutely sold out, standing ovations, everything amazing. Uh, and other places we were playing to people like close to single figures sometimes. Like it, it, it can be really up and down. Um, and that's it's about getting an audience and developing an audience for, for, the, for these venues. But to do that, you need to be going back and yeah. you need to be able to. Well, I, th- I, think, I think the venue themselves needs, needs to be program, programming the work in a way that makes it enticing for people to come in um, and there's a load of different factors that would make yeah. that right like in terms of the type of work that's coming in the price point um, how regularly you're bringing theatre in versus music or comedy or anything else like it's, it's a hard job to do some people around the country are doing a phenomenal job at it bringing incredible top quality work to regional audiences and other people from my experience other people are cashing a paycheck sitting there and doing nothing okay because regional theatre in England is really strong and you've got actors who make a career out of yeah I, I think a huge part of that is just the, the population, population difference, difference. I, I think it is I think you know if if Ireland has the same population as Manchester mm-hmm. you know it's that thing like I remember I went over to see Silver Tassie in the West End in the National recently and it just it was it was a show on a scale that doesn't exist here and I don't think it can exist here because we've got four and a half million people. Yeah. London, London has ten, yeah. um, uh, and, you know, and a massive influx of tourists every single day who want to go to London to see quality theatre. And they can cast stars. Yeah, sure. As they well. can. Yeah, you know, there's a yeah. Greater... So, um, so there's so there's that. But no, I do, I do think we have an obligation to get audiences in. Um, yeah, you got to try your best, and whether that just means putting, you know, a, a famous face on a poster then well and good I mean if they can act they can act mm-hmm. go and do yeah, it you know absolutely the rep system the Abbey rep system yeah is that you know is that still viable is that a I've asked Fiek and he says no okay he said something really interesting to me though uh, which I'd never considered because I, I would argue that it's absolutely viable and not only is it viable it's essential and the recent report kind of said not that it needs to bring the company back but that the balance of administrators to artists uh, at our national theatre is out of line and should be addressed uh, that is a view I would agree with um, Fiek said a really interesting thing to me he said you wouldn't get the actors I went what are you nuts who doesn't want a, who doesn't want a full time job in the Abbey that would be amazing and I said it to an actor who should remain nameless who my kind of age my generation uh, proper leading man one of the best we have I said, would you take an annual, like an 18-month contract in, in the Abbey in the morning? Would you take it? Went, no, probably not. I couldn't believe my jaw dropped. And I, I can kind of understand it, that if you are working with The Gate and The Abbey and Rough Magic and Druid and all these different people and you want to leave yourself open to, you know, a couple of days on Vikings here and Game of Thrones there and two weeks on a movie here or whatever else, that you wouldn't want to tie yourself down to it. Um, so I think part of it may be that the, ki- the calibre of actor that you'd be presuming you would get and you would want to get wouldn't make themselves available for that kind of an exclusive deal. So I, I don't know. inherent to the rap system is that, yes, and okay, for at a certain age, 
you want that caliber of actor but the rep system allowed for younger actors to become that caliber yeah. of actor well Gary did it Gary Hines did yeah. it you know, bringing in like Don he's kind of doing it now again. yeah that's true with the gang which is great news for actors like me <laughs> got, okay so Aaron and Rory <laughs> and Lombard and Marty okay alright uh, loads of parts for me then there okay um no, I mean, it can be done. Like I said, Gary Hines did it in, in The Abbey, bringing in people like Frank Laverty and Don Witchley and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think pretty much fresh out of the gaiety. And that thing where you're just making stuff all the time. Like the, like the way The Abbey used to run back in, you know, the 70s and 80s, where you're kind of putting on a lunchtime show on the Peacock, a kids' show in the afternoon, an early thing here, a reading there, plus the show, uh, you know, the show on the main stage and whatever else. Like the idea that... Look, the idea that the Peacock is dark at all, ever, is just a sin before God. Um, and like I understand that they they don't have as much money as they'd like to have in the Abbey but here's the thing if I have to pay my mortgage at the end of the month and my kid gets sick and I don't have the money to take my kid to the doctor I'm going to find the money to take my kid to the doctor if that means not paying the mortgage I won't pay the mortgage I'll bring my sick kid to the doctor I don't care what you have to do in the Abbey to make the Peacock run full time but fucking do it. Mm-hmm. Like, there is no excuse for that. End of story, ever, at any point. Rip up the carpets and sell them, but keep the peacock going. Like, do whatever it takes. It is the engine room of that thing. I remember being a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid sitting in the peacock on my own when the rest of my lads were out drinking and kissing girls, having the most amazing experiences uh, in the theatre in the world. Like, like just incredible. Like, like that period of kind of the late 90s, mid-late 90s loads of exciting new Irish writing going on because it was the engine room it was, it was the hub of where it was happening um, and Jesus if the Abbey don't do it then then who is yeah. Fishamble can only do so much yeah. like if, if Fishamble rock out two shows in a year that's going to be a busy year for them you know so who else like see look I mean even Druid who had you know made such a reputation of doing that in the semi-recent past um, the one they just did back for the festival I think it was their first like you know new writing play for like seven years or something um, so I, yeah I think there's no excuse for the Abbey not having it there so uh, yes that's getting off the point of young actors and the rep and whatever else but, no, I, th- I, but I think I, I think it could be worked that way yeah you mentioned something the other day that we don't quite know how bad it is oh um, nobody knows genuinely they don't people have got their head in the sand over it the analogy I keep coming back to is like a garden hose the tap was turned off post-crash in 2008. And are you talking about funding? Talking about funding, yeah. Government funding. The tap was turned off. And that's fine, because there was enough in the garden hose to trickle out over the last five or six years. The problem is, when that tap gets turned back on, uh, probably not this year, but probably next year to buy the following election, um, which is cynical, but it's exactly what's going to happen. There'll be a little bit of a giveaway this year, and there's going to be a big giveaway the following year. Um, to buy the next election so when that top gets turned on there's then going to be an 8 year airlock in that hose so all of the shows that should have been happening over the last few years that didn't because the money was gone that's where the young actors leaving the gaiety or wherever for the last couple of years should have been testing the water trying their stuff out and learning their trade on the job right um, so all those so, so you're going to be in a situation where People just won't have the experience of playing the parts. But also, administrators won't have had the experience, because all the companies were, were you know, decommissioned, basically. So all the guys who sh- and girls who should have been 
running those smaller companies to then progress up to the Rough Magic sort of project or the Abbey or whatever, that, that pipeline or that career ladder hasn't existed for a long period of time. So the skill set is gone, the expertise is, is gone to an extent. People jumped ship, people moved industries. Uh, so I, I think we, I think people think it's bad. I think nobody knows just how bad it is. I think we are in the shits. I think it's really, really bad and it's only going to get worse and we're only going to realise it gets worse when, when things kind of turn around a bit and, and are, are, are good to go again, you know? Um, so what would you do if you had an hour with the arts, the new arts minister? What would you tell her to do? I would tell her to, to I would tell her to radically rethink what the strategy has been over the last while because the strategy has kind of been non-existent. This idea of oh we'll try and minimise the cuts or whatever. I mean, where is the vocal opposition to that? Like national campaign for the arts, theatre forum, whoever you want. Uh, where has the vocal opposition to that being it hasn't people go oh well you know it is what it is there's no money that's bollocks there is money there is money because you know the schools are still running the hospitals are still running the roads are still being fixed now obviously you want your hospitals and schools to be running but to say that there isn't any money is a lie Mm -hmm. there is money there is just no value placed on Um, the arts as an industry uh, and as something that contributes to the society so I think what you would do is I mean because you're talking about uh, what seems like big money um but in terms of the overall budget for the nation, it is a tiny, tiny fraction. Now, you tell that to a single mother on a medical card in Mullingar who's struggling to get an SNA for her kid in school, they'll go, well, okay, it is what it is. But I think you would, I'll tell you what I would do, I would go and, uh, I mean, the figure that's knocked around in terms of Arts Council is that if they got, a, if the, the, the golden figure was always 100 million. If they got 100 million, they could do everything they wanted. Now, 100 million, I think we're down to something about 57 or something like that now at the moment. So, you know, it's a big jump, but forty million is what was what's what they wasted on the the matter side for the children's hospital. You know, without building a bridge. And that's still not even. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so this, so this is what we're talking about. Um, and it's not that that's money that then gets set on fire and burned so that um, wonderful, sensitive artists can follow their artistic passions. That's PAYE workers building sets, directing shows, actors. Like actors, for the most part, aren't particularly wealthy people. They're not going to shelve all this money into an offshore account somewhere they're going to go and buy a pint of milk in the local shop yeah. that shopkeeper's then going to go and get his hair cut in the local hairdressers that hairdresser's then going to go and buy a ticket to the abbey which goes into the actor's pocket and comes back around again like, I, that's, I would go radical I would go absolutely not like the French um, arts ministers just resigned over funding cuts it's the Winston Churchill quote during the war they're going okay we're going to have to axe the arts budget to fund the war and Churchill said well then what are we fighting for you know and you go, well exactly like we don't function exclusively as an economy we are a society and man does not live on bread alone the problem is you say okay well here's a cancer patient who can't get off a trolley in wherever now which do you want to do do you want to look after the cancer patient or let Engel put on a play if you if you frame the choice in those terms even I won't say I deserve the money for the play of course you look after no, the cancer no but it doesn't need to be either or exactly but that, the problem is that that's how it has been framed over the last while and those who should have been most vocal in uh, changing that uh, from the arts community haven't they've let it go like that the, the, the argument has been lost to a large extent and there's just kind of an acceptance now of oh well they'll just keep cutting stuff you know because there is okay so the, the, the cancer patient in Mullingar and then the person who goes to your show this is going to sound very twee, but the the value of what we do is the personal effects. 
Well, it, it's that. You know, it, there, there is that. I mean, I do mean man does not live on bread alone. You do need to ha- like. Okay, so otherwise, don't put any, don't, don't make any public sculpture anymore because it's you know it's nice and it's pretty, but it's not doing any good. Well, of course, it's doing good. Yeah. You want you want to. It's unquantifiable. Sh- exactly. Sh- like, you're not going to shut down yeah. the museums. You're not going to shut down the galleries. Like this is what we want as a society. Okay, but it costs. So the thing about the cancer patient, if not like this is a terrible example of using, but look, it is what it is. For every the sums on the Abbey, I think, are for every euro you give the Abbey, they generate 360. So what I'm saying is, don't if, if it costs £100 to fund this cancer bed or £100 to make this show, it's not an either-or choice. Fund the show, which generates back the 360, you can now do 3.6 yeah. cancer beds yeah, over yeah. here. Yeah. But, um, but a decision has been made... Uh, amongst those who are campaigning to change things to not try and fight it on the numbers because they don't feel the numbers work and also the intrinsic value of the arts is where the argument should be I don't think so not, know your audience Jesus Christ if, you know, as an industry or as a sector what's the one thing we should do we should know our audience and if you're talking to people who only understand facts and figures then talk to them in facts and figures. Don't say, oh, the world will have a happy glow if we, you know, we get more painters painting paint. Like, no, this is, has a serious knock-on effect for the country. I think you've got it. I always think that when they talk about consumer sentiment, me, who has no idea of business things, <laughs> but that is how people feel. Yeah. Do you know, and that's all, if you have no theatre, if you don't cinema, then people... Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, there was the thought there that is gone, so we're going to leave that <laughs> go. Um, coming back to the acting. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, yes. The, the tax incentives that exist for the film world. Yeah. Should we be thinking a little bit more outside the box? Can, can, is that a viable way of generating uh, finance for theatre? For theatre. Um, I think you've got a choice. Last year they cut Culture Ireland by 20%. Mm-hmm. Culture Ireland is the body that brings, strange enough, Irish culture, so artworks and whatever else, um, plays, musicians, whatever, around the world to showcase Ireland. Um, and so they cut Culture Ireland by 20%. And then they did a big happy photo shoot with um, all the artists when they came back from Edinburgh last year, because there was like an unprecedented trawl of Herald Angels and Fringe First. It's you know, the biggest arts festival on the planet, and the Irish dominated, as again they have this year. You're going, you don't get to have both. You can have a cosy photo opportunity with us if you want. And we'll hold our awards. We go, the land of saints and scholars isn't it great. The uh, artistic industry is what's going to turn this country around. Or you can cut culture out by 20%. You can't have both. Put your money where your mouth is. Don't do this bullshit of you know, going to the airport runway to welcome Oscar winners back if you're not going to do anything to help them get to the point where they can win Oscars in the first place. It's, uh, it winds me all the way up. Um, but Moiran Lovett said something recently, uh, you know, that what she does is often seen as an indulgence. Hmm. And for her, it is her work. She, yeah. And there, there's no actors, there's no director who, it's their work. And, yeah. and when you give somebody that respect, then... Yeah, I mean, I, think, I do think that's the issue. I, I, I just don't think, I don't think there is enough respect placed on, uh, on what we do, really. There's no value put on it. No. You know, unfortunately. And I suppose in many ways, it, it's, it is when it doesn't exist that you understand its value, <laughs> you know, which is yeah. possibly... Yeah, you know, it, but it just, it just makes sense when you think of, you know, like the knock-on effects of... It's like simple things like, like Braveheart and Ireland being showcased around the world and going, oh, well, we should go on holidays and stuff. I, I, like, it, it does work. That, that exists. Mm-hmm. The idea of cultural tourism 
exists, it is quantifiable. And it's about, you know, what are you trying to brand yourself as? It's not for the sunshine. All right, so the <laughs> acting. Yes. Um, it's a hard question. It's a hard thing to identify because in many ways it's a haphazard pro- uh, process. But how do you find your way, generally speaking, into a character? Have you, when you get a script, when you go into the Abbey, how do you, what's that process for you? Um, the only thing I concern myself with, really, mm-hmm. is just telling the truth. Genuinely. That's, that's the sole focus. Um, and is that through knowing the script inside out and upside down? or? It's about... It's hard to describe how you do what you do. Um, oh, what do I think? Yeah, it's just it's about it's about finding the truth of it. I mean, I'm interested. I, I I tend to take a back seat an awful lot in shows because genuinely, with me, there's there's no ego. I want the show to be the best it can be. I don't necessarily want for me to shine as as bright as I can. And so you get that thing. I remember, I remember working on a show recently, a while ago, and uh, there was a guy who was like playing the king and I was playing someone a little lower down in the pecking order and, uh, and any time I was kind of deferring to you know him uh, he'd come up after me somebody after the scene and rehearse go that was great acting today well done really great and any time when the story demanded I would kind of take the driving wheel and, and kind of drive the scene um, he'd come up after me I'm just, I just don't know that that's working I just I don't know like, oh, I, like, I'm big enough and ugly enough at this stage I, you know, I, can, I can deal with that kind of stuff but I'm happy I'm happy to take a step back when the light should be on someone else. I, I, I do have a broader awareness of the overall show, and I don't know if that's... I think that predates making stuff with Rise. I think it's, I think it's just the way I am. Um, which is why, I, I, now that I'm starting to move into directing a bit as well, it's why I really enjoy directing. Um, but yeah, no, ultimately it's about telling the truth, about finding the truth. So I don't tend to do funny walks or like most of the characters I play tend to sound broadly like they're from Port Marnock and uh, kind of look like me I mean obviously physically there was a big shift for fight night in that like I cut about 20 pounds of body fat put on about a half a stone of lean muscle um, shake my head and whatever else so that, that was that was a bit of a shift all right um, but just because it needed to be, yeah. like it just, but it, it's and it's not even not like yes about the aesthetics of it that you had to look like a middleweight, um, but also that thing of just to be able to carry yourself, like you move differently as a boxer. So I had to do that, um, and then, but other than that, it's just been trying to find the truth in it. I, I, I don't like uh, you, you very rarely see a show and go, Jesus, Angus was unrecognisable in that. I didn't know it was him at all. Like it's, I, I think it's usually. It's usually pretty close to me, which is ironic if I'm giving out about other people playing themselves earlier. Yeah, but there's a difference, and because what you're saying is, it's honesty. It's because that that is acting. We have this notion that acting is not being recognisable. Yeah. Yes, it's more about being open, or is that what you're saying? I mean, well, I'd say the major barber thing in the Abbey last year. Like, I'm 18 years in the business now. That's the first time anyone ever let me play comedy. Straight up comedy. It's bizarre. And I only realised as I was doing it, I was going, I'm really enjoying this. Mm-hmm. So that was, I mean, like, there was a... Maybe I'm doing myself a disservice. I mean, like, there was a big shift in that. And, uh, again, in terms of how I carried myself. Um, and that, that character was an awful lot stupider than I am. Um, so, but, you know, but that's fine, too. Um, yeah, maybe I'm not giving myself the credit. I don't know. Like, it's... 
like you do, you, you take on what you need to take on for part, but ultimately, ultimately it's about looking, so it's about looking the other actor in the eyes and, have, and having that feel real. Listening properly. Listening, it, it, for me, is absolutely vital. Because uh, I've, worked, I've worked with actors who like, just listen so intently to you. And I don't mean, I, don't mean, I do mean literally listening, but also I mean, um, it's, it's like listening with your full body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've worked with actors who do that, and I, and I love watching actors who do that. It's incredible to watch. I've also worked with actors who work in a magical little bubble where, honest to God, I could do a fucking backflip in the middle of the scene and they wouldn't notice. They're in their own magical world, playing their own magical part, uh, and, and, and nothing you do is going to penetrate that at all, which is, which is kind of really weird to work with. Um, yeah, that's what, that's, that's what I'm trying to do when I'm on stage. Okay. Um, the most... Now, um, fight night in one sense, but... Are there other parts that have challenged you? Because uh, Fight Night was a good challenge. Yeah, Fight Night was great. Um, are there parts where you've just felt, oh... <laughs> I had to play, play Varsheen in, in Three Sisters in college, and it nearly killed me. Why? Because I was a 20-year-old kid who didn't know his arse from his elbow, okay. trying to play this man in his 40s in a big beast of a play. And I was working with a director who, well, she was our acting coach, she was a thunder bitch. And I was, I was in a bad way with it. I, was, I, I went up to her one day and said, look, I am helplessly lost here. I am drowning. It, give me anything, a hint, a help. Throw me a lifeline here at all. And she looked me in the eyes and she said, I'm the director. My job is to direct. You're the actor. Your job is to act. And walked away. Now, even in a professional context, that would have been an absurd thing to say. But to say it as, your, as my acting coach in fucking drama school, you go, oh, Jesus Christ. Um, so that nearly killed me. Um, and did you get? Was there a moment of where the clouds lifted and you? No, I made no, a balls of that no. one. <laughs> <laughs> it's famously me uh, with Ruth Negga as Masha. Oh. I had this magical moment. Where was, like, and she was brilliant. But we had this moment where I'm uh, we're doing the, the, the performance of it, and you know all the heads from the college are there, whatever else. And I'm in the middle of like this one of these big long speeches that Fashinan has, and I was doing a really good job. Like this was proper acting. I was like. You're on fire here, Angle. This is good stuff. Keep going with this. And then I noticed that Ruthie was staring at me, terrified, like like a deer in headlights. And I was like, what the fuck is wrong with her? I'm doing amazing acting over here. She needs to just enjoy this for a second. And she's just looking at me. I'm like, why is she doing... Oh, God almighty, this is the speech from Act 3, not the speech from Act 2. <laughs> Genuinely. I'm in the middle of Act 2 doing the speech from Act 3. And I went, I, I, there is no way out of this. This is like I'm skiing down a mountain and there is no way for me to stop and turn this around. I just have to see this out. And what, what happened? <laughs> well, luckily, Versina has all these lines about what do we chat about next? What should we discuss? What are we? And I just kind of finished the speech and just looked at Ruthie and just went... What should I say now? <laughs> and she kind of salvaged it and we got through. I got off stage and went, Phew, thanks be to Jesus, that's over. Oh Christ, now I have to go back on an act three and do it again. <laughs> so that was horrible. Oh. Um, that was a bad one. No, there's been, that mean, like, there's been some really nice parts. The, doing Barry the Thebes, Seamus Heaney's Barry the Thebes in, well, in the Peacock, was phenomenal. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah, I did see that. It was just amazing because I mean the first production had been that they did upstairs in the Abbey had been problematic, and I think they were doing it. I think they were doing it for Seamus to say, "Look, sorry about that. We're going to give it a crack in production now." Um, and you're working with incredible actors like you know Declan Conlon, 
uh, Gemma Reeves, like amazing. But also they brought on a lot of like Des Cave, you know, who was the last remaining uh, member of the Abbey Company, was in it as well. Like incredible cast, Jane Brennan, everybody. They were all amazing. Um, and and Patrick Mason directing. You go, okay, this is Tony winner Patrick Mason. Okay. Um, and I remember getting the phone call about that job, saying they want you to come in an audition. And the only time, it's the only time my life this has ever happened. I got the phone call, and I'm getting that, getting that job. Not kind of I'm determined to go and get it. Just going, this is what is going to happen. Okay. Um, and I worked my ass off for the audition. Like the text is incredible, as you may have noticed. Seamus Heaney can write. Um, like there's a reason the dude has a Nobel Prize. Uh, he's put in an exceptional dramatist as well. Really good playwright. Uh, so the script was there and I, and I worked my ass off on it I went in to do the audition and oh man two minutes into the audition I started talking pro wrestling and Holly Nikirga <laughs> who was then casting director in the Abbey was just staring at me just sitting beside Patrick Mason just staring at me going what the f- what are you doing and I, so I very quickly handbraked out of that and kind of got, and I said look we'll just we'll go for it uh, and, and I played the scene and played it to Patrick which I would never do in an audition setting because um, it was just a monologue I played it to him uh, and he just went, wow, I, I can see Andrea Ainsworth did a great job with you. Andrea Ainsworth, of course, is the voice coach in the Abbey, who'd be my voice coach in, in, in Trinity. Um, and really, yeah, no, I mean, just in terms of, just in terms of how I was using the verse, I like, I like working in verse. I've done it an awful lot. I kind of know what I'm doing with it. But that was a great part. That was one of those ones where it was a big challenge because mm-hmm. it's big stuff. Uh, it's, it's big Greek tragedy, so like, yeah. it's going to be big. Um, and I haven't been asked to do a huge amount of that kind of emotional stuff really to that point in my career and so stepping up and, 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 I, and I, I, if I say so myself I was pretty good in that show and the show itself was awesome um, it was just a really nice team really nice setup. Uh, I, I had a great time on that that was you know as you look back on these things that was that, that was, was a nice one remember. yeah um, directors or actors whose working practice has influenced you Mm, that's an interesting one. Um, I've been lucky enough to work with an awful lot of very good directors. Mm-hmm. Like Patrick, I, I think is brilliant. Um, Selena Cartmel is amazing. Uh, Annabelle as well. Annabelle Common is like she's she's my kind of director. Uh, really rigorous, really intellectual as well, I guess. Text based. Yeah, very much yeah. so. Very much so. Um, but, but tough as well. Like she knows what she wants. I had, a, I had a very difficult time on the house with her. The Tom Murphy thing. We had very different opinions of what that character should be. Um, I kind of diametrically opposed, which is tough um, to reconcile. Uh, so that was hard. And I, how do you reconcile that? Do what your boss says. Keep Jason Byrne says to say yes and then do your own. Yeah, that too. <laughs> that too. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you, you find you find a happy medium. And also, just it's that thing of, well, okay, you had decided in your head you wanted to play this character one way. That doesn't mean that was the correct way or the only way. You know, Annabelle's looking to take it in a different direction. Okay, so go there. Okay. I do that. And we did. And, we, and, and it, becomes, it becomes a collaboration and a negotiation. But, I, but it was one of those ones where, whilst that was an amazing show, like a really great production, um, I never got to relax into it. And maybe that's a good thing. Um, but every night out there, it felt like work. I, I, I felt like I really had to work to, to achieve what I was trying to do with that character. Um, I never got a chance to just kind of sit back and let it sing. Was that, inte- was that part of the character you were playing? Or was it just... No, it was just about, not, about having to do something so different to what I had initially intended on was doing. Was that with confidence? It. Uh, I don't know. 
No, I don't think it's a confidence issue. Because I knew what I was like. I knew I was able to do what I was doing, but it just it didn't it didn't sit as easily with me as something else might have. Okay. I was just, it was just playing. It was just a different focus in terms of the character. Um, so that was that was tough. I like had a tough time on that. But then I was working with her again on Major Barbara, time in my life. I mean, I worked with Annabelle right through back, still in Trinity. She directed one of our final year shows. Um, I, I think she's an, an incredible director. Uh, and then you see the other thing is when you, like I'm a fan of Irish theatre, like first and foremost, really. So. You know, working with people like Declan Conlon or Owen Rowe or someone like Cathy Belton. Cathy's a spectacular actor. And fucking hard working with it. This is the one thing. The, one, the long rag knock around the business. The one thing that I keep seeing is the harder you work, the luckier you get. Uh, like there's no coincidence in that. Like, genuinely. Like the, the, all the most successful people I know are the hardest working. Okay. End of story. Um, yeah, so it's just like sharing a rehearsal room with Cathy Belt and just watching her work her magic and kind of going for like, you know, when a director's going, look, you don't have to go, for, like, if you go on the third or fourth pass through a big emotional scene or whatever, like, you don't have to give it 100% now. And she's going, I know you're all right, and goes and smacks it 100%. You go, just caring that much about it, working that hard. Killian Murphy and Bobby Turk, um, it's an incredible performance from him. It's an astonishing performance. It's unlike anything else I've ever seen. It's not, it's not that he's in a different league to other actors. He's just playing a different sport. It's just not like anything else that anybody else does. Um, mesmerising to watch. Uh, but I don't, know how, I, I don't know how much I can take or steal from that in terms of what you would replicate because it's just, it's just a different thing. It's just a him. Uh, but like, massively compelling to look at. So the film... Yeah. Because it's a film podcast. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's mention it at least. Um, uh, when you work in film, the, uh, so geeky, uh, the essential differences for you between working in film and theatre, what do you have to shift? Um, I do feel more pressured on a film set. And maybe, like, I've, I've done a reasonable amount. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but maybe it's from lack of experience there's something it's weird it's that thing of performing under pressure like, when, like when, when they call action you have to go but that's no difference to like getting you know a beginner's call when you're in the theatre but I do feel more stress to, more stress more pressure to perform on a film set um, I do like it though I mean my style you're talking about like you know theatrical styles and things being a bit more filmic or whatever else the st- my style and the kind of the, the way I work and the, the kind of work I like is, is quite filmy a lot of the time. It's very not. I I'm surprised to hear that you didn't write the games people play because it was so natural. You assume it was you. Yeah, well, there's a couple, like there's a couple of things with that. I mean, a like Gavin is writing it for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's coming from me, uh, like the initial spark of the idea and whatever else. So. So yeah, so it, it does sit pretty comfortably, but but it, it is about it's it's a combination of Gavin's writing, but also my style of playing. I try and make it as natural as possible, where possible. Like, I mean, the, like this theatre strong style brand that I bang on about so much. Um, like that like that is a very definite aesthetic across the work that we do, uh, and so it is. It's it is quite filmic. So I so I, I quite like being on a film set or doing a TV thing, um, and. But like it's it's rare enough that I've been doing big substantial parts in in movies and TV and whatever else. So the kind of camaraderie that you get on a play where you're with people for 
you know, maybe six weeks or up to 14 or 15 weeks for one of the big shows in the Abbey. Um, that sense of camaraderie is harder to come by. I've, I've done a couple, I mean, there's been a couple of movies and TV stuff where I have been around for, for longer. Uh, and that's nice. That's nice to play with. It's a movie we did with, with Owen Rowe and Rory Keane and Aunt Gemma Reeves again and, uh, and Michelle Forbes, Owen's wife, playing real life, uh, husband and wife. And that was nice. That was kind of a nice substantial chunk to get out. A nice little movie too. Um, and you do, you start to, and Aidan Kelly was in that too. Man, Aidan was so good. Uh, yeah, so you, kinda, you do, you start to get into a bit more of a, a, a rhythm and a pattern with it. Is uh, it a question of scale for you? Yeah, I think yeah. it probably is. I think it probably is. I mean, ultimately, ultimately the principles are the same. It's like, a t- like I was talking about, just that thing of telling the truth. Ultimately, it's still just that. You just need to be aware. Okay, so the big thing for me is, we, like for the podcast thing, we do a lot of audio drama with Roy's as well. And transposing stuff from one medium to another, there's just, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages. Mm-hmm. There's different skills and tools and stuff that you can use. Like, so with all this short audio drama we're doing at the moment, you no longer have the person's body language on stage in terms of that as a, as a storytelling tool. So you've got to find other ways to do that. Um, and there's things you can do with like kind of radio drama that you can't do anywhere else, and it's great. So it's just about knowing which tools you can draw to help tell the story. Ultimately, I'm just a, t- a storyteller. Mm-hmm. That's, that's our job, really. Um, and I do think like, it, it, it's a direct line through from like the rituals of you know shaman and whatever else that, Declan, that's it's what we do you know the um uh the english director declan donnellan yes he has this lovely line that uh the value of theater is if or, or the arts if armageddon happens tonight now i'm, I'm sure he is taking into account the business of surviving yes. but you know we will all sit around campfires yeah. telling stories yeah. um which is Kind of fundamental, yeah, and particularly in Irish culture, that that old Shanachie style of storytelling, which is basically what fight mode is, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like it's 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 massively ingrained in who we are, like in terms of cultural memory, race memory, or whatever. Um, so yeah, storytellers, yeah. So that's so when so the, I mean the differences for camera, it's it's still the same. Like yeah, scale is important. Um, but you're still looking for the same thing. You're still looking for that eye contact and just telling the truth and, and really sparking off each other. Mm-hmm. And that's that's when you that's when you know what's happening. And when have you known that that's happened? When are those moments? Because sometimes you ask actors, or you hear great actors talking, and they can literally identify three times in their whole career where it was like, yes, that was it. And they're probably being unfair in themselves. Yeah. Well. Um, like it's funny I, I like watching what, I know some people don't like watching their stuff back I love watching what I do mm-hmm. um, to see what's going on and say oh okay use that don't use that whatever I, I, think, I think it's a useful thing um, I'm trying to go like, I don't know what am I going to say like here's the stuff I'm most proud of I don't no, know no but I mean like there's no harm in saying we're, we're very critical of ourselves we have to celebrate the good stuff the process of fighting it because it's a one man show mm-hmm. And because, like I said, it's that shanky thing where you're talking to the audience. Uh, you know when you're on it, and you know when you don't, because essentially, because you don't like the thing I talk about that, that connection with a scene partner. You don't have a scene partner in a solo show, so the audience become your scene partner. So that relationship is quite a sacred one. Um, but so the more I went on with it, the more I learned to kind of you, you have to. It's a, it's a give and take thing. So you kind of surf in that wave like a like a stand-up comedian almost in some respects. Um, and there's times when you 
there's times in flight night when I knew I had them. Okay. And there's times when, when that's like a brilliant moment where you get completely lost in it. Like the last, the last one of fight night that I did, I think we played down in Limerick. And I hadn't done it in a while. And I found myself welling up at a part of the show that I'd never cried at before, ever. And like, this is like 100 performances in. I was going, where the fuck is this coming from? I'll just go with it, it's there. So the idea that you can be that in the moment, as they say, and kind of be surprised by your own performance and by the play that you know inside out, is kind of magical. But equally, there's been times in fight night when I'm doing it and I know I have them in the palm of my hand and I work them. Uh, I work them in a way that... Uh, I have to work some, it's, Again, it's back to pro wrestling. Um, pro wrestling, a lot of the language they use comes from con men because it, it is a con. It's like it's, it's a fix. Yes, you know, it's scripted. Okay. Yeah, so so the, the concept of working someone uh, like a con man, you know, would be working them. And so I, I, there's points when, like, very consciously, not lost in the moment, but as as a skilled actor choosing to technically do some things, um, knowing you have them in the palm of your hand and working them over really well, and and then eliciting the response that you were hoping for, feels amazing, <laughs> amazing because it's because it's not. It's, I mean, it sounds manipulative, and, I, and in some respect, it is. But it's it's about providing them with the experience that they deserve of the show. Uh, it's, but it's not manipulative. It's kind of it's it's illuminating the stories, the parts of the story which you think need to yeah. be heard. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, it is, and, and, and that's that's massively satisfying. Um, yeah, I was good in that Barry the Thieves show. <laughs> that was good. And then um, there was one other thing I did. There was a show called The Nose that I did with Performance Corporation, which was bonkers, absolutely bonkers. But it was the first time. First time that, like, that, that I had kind of carried, and I said to carry the show, sorry, that the central character of, uh, of the major that I was playing is the story, around, it's around him that the story circulates. So, so it's that thing of, you know, being a leading man, carrying a show. That's the first time I had to do it. And I really enjoyed stepping up to the plate with that. Because like I said, I'm, I'm not shy about taking a step back and giving someone else the limelight when the story demands it. So to actually think, I'm actually going to go up here and grab this by the whatever. Uh, that was nice too. Have you any sense of the qualities people cast you for? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, oh, I got in trouble for this. Really? Yeah, I got in trouble with this with Kelly Phelan in the Abbey. Because um, I think sometimes people see me as a safe pair of hands. Like a good, solid, steady, dependable pro. And not to milk the pro wrestling analogy too hard. Um, like, like kind of a, a good, solid mid-card worker. Someone who you know can go out and have a good match with anybody. Um, and make, uh, make good people look like stars and make average people look pretty good too uh, so I think I'm a safe pair of hands I don't think people I don't think people take huge risks with me all that much now maybe maybe I'm responsible for that maybe I don't take enough risks in the work that I'm doing myself to allow people to and uh, take a risk with me and is that frustration? Um, I guess I guess it is I'd like I'd love are there parts you'd love to play that you don't feel um... uh, I would love Okay, I've got a big happy smiley head on me and people know me as kind of Mr. Generally Positive, happy-go-lucky, you know, whatever else. So I'd love to, I'd love to go a good bit darker than that. Okay. Like, I, like the idea, this is going to sound like the weirdest thing in the world. But the idea of playing a paedophile is like, one of the, I, I would fucking love that. If <laughs> That's not the weirdest thing that any human being has ever said. But I'd love to go there. I'd love to see what the psychological journey for me would be as an actor. Uh, and I'd love, and I think I could surprise people. I surprised people with Fight Night. They didn't expect that from me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I do I think, broadly speak, speaking, people do see me as a safe pair of hands. Like Kelly, Kelly Freeland, they'll be giving out to me for saying that. She goes, that we don't see you as that. And I go, well, cool, okay, then cast me in more stuff. Now. Um, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think. Because I wouldn't associate, like, I mean this as a positive, I wouldn't associate you with a particular character type. I wouldn't say you're somebody who's typecast. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe um, I play a lot of cops. I play a lot of cops okay. on TV, on TV and film stuff, um, but yeah, no, I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to feel people would feel that they could take a chance and, and push me a bit more. I think again, like I said about the wrestlers not having feeling that they weren't getting the push they deserved, mm-hmm. or feeling that the slot they were given wasn't didn't quite match with where they felt they could be. I think there's an element of that with me. I think I think if people roll the dice on me a bit more, they might surprise themselves. Okay, um, you've heard it here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I am available for work. <laughs> Well, Jonathan Shanky um, and Lisa Richards. Are there parts you would love to play? Are there, you know, iconic roles? Or? Owen in Translations is the big one for me. Okay. Translations is the greatest play of all time. Okay. Uh, that's not my opinion, that's a fact. Okay. Um, I got in trouble <laughs> in an audition. I shouldn't have, fuck, I'll tell you. Uh, Dominic Trumbull of The Globe was doing Philadelphia Here I Come Here. And I had, uh, I was in at the audition meeting him, and uh, we got into a discussion as my opinion that Brian Friedel is the greatest writer of all time. He is. Uh, he, he, he gently disagreed. <laughs> Sorry, we have an ice bucket here. He, he gently disagreed. Um, and I said, no, well, you mean like Friedel is, is the best. He went, well, not everyone would agree with you. I said, I know, I'd, but they'd be wrong. And he went, well, you know, a, a lot of people would, would think maybe that Shakespeare's probably better. And I go, yeah, yeah, they would, and they, they'd also be wrong, and I'd fight them for it. And he went, and this is Dominic from Go from the Globe. And he went, well, well, I would think that Shakespeare is better. I said, and you're wrong, and I'll fight you for <laughs> it. So I don't know that threatening to punch a director in an audition is the best way to go about getting jobs, but weirdly, I didn't get cast in that show. Oh. But my integrity and my love for Brian Field remained intact. So yeah, Owen in translations, I would okay. love, I would love to do. Okay. Um, I would, I'd like to have a go at Hamlet. I've no interest in Romeo. But I would have Romeo a, a, is not a great character. He's got no backbone. Yeah, it's a funny one. <laughs> it's a funny one. Um, I, yeah, that's that's not one that does it for me. And also, I think realistically at this stage, me as Romeo would be a bit of a stretch. Although <laughs> um, uh, David Tennant, he played Romeo when he was thirty-four. Jesus, hope for us all then. Um, but no, I'd, I'd love to go at Hamlet. Okay. I'd love to go at Hamlet. It's tough, but it's a great part. It's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. You arranged. For your, you were the first year from Trinity to do a showcase in London. Yeah, which we is were. What we're doing. Yeah, I fought for it. I fought for it for three years. You're so embedded in Irish theatre, yeah. particularly film yeah. too. But I, um, and in many ways, you've kind of created a community with Rise. With Rise, yeah. is moving abroad at something ever? I know you've tried. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wife and a child and a mortgage and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the idea of being another paddy off the boat okay. and just going to London on spec. Uh, to try and audition for stuff holds no appeal for me whatsoever. Okay. Um, just, just, it's just not on the radar. And I, did those opportunities ever come along? But yeah, well, well, I got offered representation in London after the, the showcase we did there. Right. Okay. Uh, and and chose chose not to do it. I mean, there was there was a, a lot of work lined up for me. I mean, I, I was very fortunate. Kind of the first kind of year and a half out of drama school, it was gig to gig to gig to what gig and solid stuff. Uh, I did Romeo and Juliet pretty close after we left we, I, did, I was in the Abbey later in that year I was doing TV so I was doing movie stuff I was doing Ellen Enchanted like I know I, th- I was around that time I think I 
I think it was when I just left, I had to turn down a part in intermission, which to this day still breaks my soul, um, because I was too busy. I was doing like a play, a movie, and a TV thing all at the same time. And just, just we couldn't fit in the schedule. I had to turn it down. Um, but yeah, that that kind of first year, eighteen months out, I was like, I was. Con- I don't think, I think I was under contract for the entire first eighteen months out of okay. out of college. Uh, so it just made sense to be here uh, and keep that going. Now, having said that, like if if it looked like a good idea to go, or if I was going over with a show or whatever, I would like. There's no problem in doing that. But the idea of just being a jobbing actor over in London, it's just not on the radar for me. I've I've a nice career here and a nice life here, um, and as you say, I've also got like a wife and child with you know jobs and schools and everything here. You know, so there are ties to here, but. Um, you know, if it was a six-month run in the West End, would I go in the morning? Absolutely. If Peter Jackson rang and said, we need you for 18 months in New Zealand, yeah, we'd do that too. Okay. Um, but yeah, but not the other thing. Um, yes, so Rise has done radio, theatre. Have you any ambitions to do film? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, Logistically, it's going to be tricky, mm-hmm. just in terms of... Uh, well, funding, particularly, um, and the thing that we've been able to do with Rise is just kind of create enough of a track record in terms of the theatre stuff, just by will and hard work, um, that you then start qualifying for stuff. But but without a track record for making films, it's going to be hard to make films. But yeah, no, absolutely. Like I said, we're Rise Productions, we're not Rise Theatre Company. The intention always was to jump from medium to medium and kind of platform to platform. Okay. Um, I would be I would be surprised if we don't have stuff on screen by the end of 2016. I don't think we'll get, I don't think we'll get there next year, but I think the following year we will. Okay. Just in terms of what we've got planned in for next year already. Um, but it's why look anytime I get a chance to like so I've been hosting the Irish Times Theatre Awards the yes. last two years yeah. and different people have different approaches to it, do different things. I open each year with a short film. So, I've, so in, in effect, I've produced those two short films. The first one, we did uh, kind of a parody on the uh, Just Saying one that Dave Tynan did, um, that Catherine Kennedy produced. Uh, they very kindly let us do a, a version of it. Um, and, then, and then we did a, a new one from scratch for this year of just kind of like, like, I mean, like any of those award show things, it's comedy skit territory. Um, the Just Saying was brilliant. The Just Saying one was yeah, good. It was, it, was just, it, was, it was absolutely the right thing for the right time because I was pulling my hair out going, what am I going to do? What's, what's bang on now? What's, what's, what is of the moment? And it was so hot right at that time yeah. um, because all the emigrants had come home for Christmas and there was this story about leaving Ireland or not leaving Ireland and all this stuff. Um, and then we, and the, the awards at the very start of February, so, like, so it, was, it, it, it was at the peak of its popularity when we did it. So was it a case that you saw Emmett Kerwin's and then you were like, yes, I know what yeah, I'm doing. Yeah, that was it. I said, okay. yeah, I'm going to steal that. Okay. Spoke to Emmett, and Emmett does a cameo in it as well. Uh, so I spoke to Emmett about it. He cleared it with them, said that we could do it, and we did it. Uh, so yeah, so I like, uh, like I said, you know, stylistically, that kind of naturalism and that kind of film equality that I try and bring to the, the theatre pieces. Uh, yeah, the logical step is to go and try and do some film now. Um, I, like, I think it'll probably will start with shorts. Okay. Um, in the way that we're doing with the audio stuff with a view to building up to full-scale radio plays eventually. Um, and so equally, I think, I have a couple of ideas for what I want to do um, for a sequence of uh, a sequence of five, ten-minute shorts. 
but just the logistics of that is like it, it's big. So yeah. you, you talk, but you know, the thing I always do with Rise is like I look after people really well when they work with us, but also I'm not I'm not afraid to call in favors. Um, and for something like that, where it's a, cont- a self-contained project in a self-contained period of time, uh, you can call in favors. Yeah. You know. Okay. Okay. That's the plan. Um. Best and worst advice you've ever gotten. The best advice is from my granddad, Ray McAnally, who had three best actor BAFTAs, so I'm going to listen to him. Um, <laughs> did he? Yeah, he did. The last, this is my favourite story about him. The last one he won, obviously there's four nominees in the category, he wins the BAFTA. The other three nominees who he beat, so he was a better actor than, um, the other three nominees were uh, Sean Connery, Jack Nicholson as the Joker in Batman, and Marlon fucking Brando. So that wasn't a bad category to win. <laughs> so his, his advice was... And so what, what role did he win for? Uh, that one must have been my left foot. Must have been. Oh, gosh. Yeah, incredible. Um, his advice was, a consistently high standard of work over a long period of time cannot go unnoticed. Okay. And I think that's the way you've got to look at it. I was talking to uh, a young fresh graduate from one of the drama schools here recently who was kind of freaking out that in the first six weeks hadn't been signed up to one of the major agents whatever else going, this is a long game this is a marathon it's not a sprint chill out it'll be fine trust me it'll be fine and funnily enough another friend of mine just uh, who's a year out of drama school now just yesterday signed with one of the big agents here in the world as well so you're going okay great so like that can happen so you're going like cool cool it down it'll be fine so that's uh, I, think, I think that's a good bit of advice the worst advice I've ever been given was <laughs> after that kind of first 18 months out of drama school genuinely going job, 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 job and so clearly I was back to being the greatest actor of all time um, we had an offer in for a TV thing and it just the contract wasn't going to make sense and logistically it was going to be paying the ass and we, we decided to pass on it and turn it down uh, and I remember sitting in the agency offices of Lisa Richards with Jonathan Shanky going I mean Look, Jonathan, say no to it. Like, what's work? Like, look at how I've been working for the last eighteen months. It's not like I'm going to be sitting my arse doing nothing for the next six months. Needless to say, tumbleweed for the next six months. But I think that's okay. I don't know that that's bad advice. Like, like I'm fortunate enough now that I am in a position, not that I can pick and choose what I want to do, but I can say no to stuff I don't want to do, okay. and that's a beautiful luxury to have. Yeah. Um, it is actually true that often the only time, yeah. it's the only power you have. Is yeah, to say it no. is. It still feels weird though. My granddad, the day he died, my dad was on the phone to him. Uh, and bear in mind, like he had just signed his first million dollar contract, and this is 1989, so it's a lot of money. Um, but he was on the phone to my dad the day he died, and he said, Do you know, I've already turned down 20 movies this year, and this is June. He goes, I've already turned down 20 movies this year. I wonder how long I can keep saying no before they stop asking me. This is a guy with three BAFTAs in his arse pocket. I'm, absolutely top of his game and, and that, that freelance ethos never really leaves you uh, and so I still find it hard to turn down stuff okay. um, like any man who can take a job in the Abbey and a TV show in Galway at the same time clearly has a trouble saying no to stuff um, but there is there's an anxiety you almost feel like you're betraying yourself yeah. by saying well, it's, just, it's just that thing of like sitting in your bedroom as a teenager going all I want in my life is to be an actor now you're getting the chance to do it. someone goes I want to pay you money to be an actor and you go no I don't want to do that job and look, there can be a load of reasons for that, um, but that, that's a nice luxury to have. I have to say, it does. It, yeah, it, it, it makes life a little bit easier. Okay. 
I'm sorry, we're nearly done. I'm okay. Not you forever. Uh, performances that have stuck with you in film or in theatre that you have seen. I went to see punk rock in the Lyric in Belfast the other week. Jimmy Faye's first production up there as not artistic director, look, I think he's called executive producer, or whatever he is. It's probably the best show I've ever seen. Just incredible. Selena Cartmel directing again. Like, just an incredibly talented bunch of young actors, most of them fresh out of drama school. Oh, just really great. Um, Michael, Keegan Dolan, Michael Keegan Dolan's Fabulous Beast Company, their production of Giselle from the festival, might be 10 years ago now. That stays with me as, as, a, as a phenomenal one. And in terms of film, uh, there's a movie that Sean Penn did. Is it Mystic River? It might be. There's one where his kid's been killed or something. It is Mystic River and, and Kevin Bacon is in this Yeah, it? that sounds right. So there's a scene in that. And is it Robin Wright is playing as Mrs. In it? Possibly. Anyway, so there's a scene with the two of them, right? And it's her scene. So the camera's on her. Like, it's a two-shot. He's, he's kind of sitting behind her shoulder. But it's her scene. It's her speech. She's driving it along. And I, cu- and I couldn't... I couldn't process the scene in the cinema while I was watching. I was going, there's something wrong here and I don't know what it is. It was really weird. I couldn't get a handle on it. And just before the scene finished, I got what it was. It was her scene. So the camera was on her. He was just over her shoulder. But so she was in focus because it was set to her. Whereas he was just maybe a foot or two behind her. So he was ever so slightly out of focus. But his performance was so compelling that he was... Like all the folk, all the attention from the audience was straight to him, not to her, and it felt so weird because because the camera wasn't doing it; just his performance was doing it. So you're getting pulled to this slightly out of focus thing. It's bizarre. That's something that stuck with me from film. Kind of going, Jesus Christ, you can really reach out through the lens. Advice to your twenty-year-old self. Twenty-year-old Ango. Yeah. Um, don't mind her. She's a bitch. She's not a director. She's an acting tutor. She should be teaching what to do. It's advice number one. Uh, advice number two is work harder sooner. Okay. Uh, work harder sooner. I I, I I can get away with an awful lot of stuff, kind of coasting. Um, I, like I'm relatively competent, relatively talented. I, I know what I'm doing. I'm experienced. I can, if I'm let, if I let myself or a team around me can let it happen, I can coast and kind of get away with it and be fine. But that's not good enough. You know, it's just not. You've got to work harder. So I would, yeah, work harder sooner. Get up off your arse sooner. Okay. Make rise happen sooner. Um, and uh, and stay in touch with Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway. Yeah. We had a very, we had a very good time together. Really? Yeah. On on Ella Enchanted. Got on like a house on fire. Oh, Ella Enchanted. Yeah. That was shot. In it was here. Was it? Yeah. Shut that all here. Okay, and you didn't stay in touch with her. No, we got on, we got on really well, like really well. Yeah. Um, because we did this fight scene together, so we did a lot of fight prep for it. So I, it no, I'm sorry, I haven't seen. It's a spectacular motion picture. Um. <laughs> it's a spectacular motion picture. If you have a seven-year-old niece, you let her watch that. No, it's like, like it's nice. It's fantasy princess territory. Um, but we got on like house on fire and. Uh, you know, just, like, just having a really good crack like singing on set and uh, having a really good time um, but then so like so it cuts to the rap party I'm going like she's Mrs. Hollywood and you know whatever else she might not remember me I, we hadn't got on well but who might and I went up to her at the rap party to say um, 
you know, hi Anne, thanks for the last few weeks we've been talking whatever else. Didn't get a chance to open my mouth. She goes, I fucking loved you in Plough on the Stars. You're going, it's like she'd come to the Abbey to see me. Right. And yeah, we got on very well. Yeah, so stay in touch with Anne Hathaway. It's the main advice to 20 year old Daniel. That would have been useful. Uh, it would. It would. Maybe you should still prefer that line. Um, <laughs> okay, we spoke about the challenges and the difficulties, and you've lived to them and you you are living them. But why do you love? What? Why do you do what you do? Like, what, why do you love it? It's that thing. It's, it's not that I can't do anything else. I, like I'm sure I could sell insurance or dig holes or whatever. Um, but it's that thing of. It's like people get drunk and get hungover. You know that there's a lot of misery attached, and you probably shouldn't drink that much again. But the crack of having a few glasses of champagne on a night out, if you're in a place where you would drink champagne, I don't know, or pints or whatever, um, you forget it, like childbirth. You forget, you forget about the bad bits, you just remember the good bits. Um, I think the people who stick with it are the people who have to. Because it's too, it's like it would be much easier to pack it in and walk away. It's a hard business. Even, even when you're successful, it's a hard business. Uh, and there's no real logic to doing it. You should, like, you shouldn't do it. But if you can trick yourself into not caring about that, or, or justify to yourself that the pros outweigh the cons, then I, I, think, I think the people who stick with it are the ones that have to. They, they don't have a choice. Like, it's like the vocation line that you hear people talk about. Um, yeah, I, I, look, I love it. I love everything about it. I love the crack around it. I love, I love being around actors. I love being around, they're interesting people. They're great storytellers. Um, I mean, Jesus Christ. Like, you spend an hour on Marty Ray's company, holy God. Um, I, I love being around actors. I love being around theatre people. I love being around film people. They're, they're a different breed. Like, you know, it's that kind of, you know, travelling circus, gypsy thing, outsider renegade badass just we're slightly different we look at the world a bit differently and they're wonderfully exciting people to be around I, I love all of them and I love I love I love that moment of being on stage I love sharing that with an audience and it's funny now as I said the more, the more directed I'm doing as well that I don't actually have to be on stage to do that that I can help shape what's going to happen and know that an audience is going to get it that's also enough uh, it's just it's just great why would you do anything else um, and on that note, <laughs> um, thank you very, very much, Angus O'Mcnally. Thank you.